Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000. They're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100, uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes, that's his name, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy, and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. It's interesting how during the presidency of George W. Bush and just before it, we saw this major effort to conflate George W. Bush and his father's presidency with that of John Quincy Adams and John Adams. And to his credit, John Quincy Adams was arguably one of the most high-minded ethical presidents and politicians of the 19th century, you know, of that entire era. And he was defeated by Andrew Jackson, who basically called him a limp-wristed wimp. John Quincy Adams was very educated and he was very opposed to slavery, so much so that after he lost the presidential election and was no longer president, lost the election to Andrew Jackson, he ran for Congress and went back into the U.S. House of Representatives just so he could break the law and bring up the issue of slavery every single day. So anyhow, into this modern maelstrom steps Bradley J. Berzer. He is a professor of history and the Russell Kirk Chair in American Studies. Uh, Russell Kirk, of course, the author of The Conservative Mind back in 1951, the book that kicked off the modern conservative movement. He's a co-founder and editor-at-large of The Imaginative Conservative. His website, Brad Berzer, B-I-R-Z-E-R dot com. And you can tweet him at Bradley Berzer. 
at Hillsdale College. Dr. Berzer, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Tom. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. You know, you have written a book in defense of Andrew Jackson, and I'm just baffled by this. This guy was a hypocrite. He was a moral coward. He was a slave owner. And over the years, he, when he first bought the Hermitage, he had 10 slaves there. By the time he died, he had 150. He was in the business. He was a probable rapist, but he was a fan of genocide. When he had taken New Orleans, he had people executed just because they upset him. How could anybody defend this man? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tom. I mean, there's certainly there's so many things about Jackson that are problematic, if not downright wrong. And I think that's a fair assessment. Part of what I was trying to do with the in defense of, and I like John Quincy Adams as well, in fact, I think he's the best man of that era. But part of what I was trying to do is just kind of move beyond some of the stereotypes that have really grown since the 1960s regarding Jackson, especially in terms of his Indian policy, and try and give it a little bit of context. So I know the title is in defense of, but it's really more, let's see this guy in context and try and figure out what he was trying to do and how people responded to him. So, for example, in 1830, he signed this law, the Indian Removal Act, which legalized ethnic cleansing. Within seven years, 46,000 human beings were removed from their homelands east of the Mississippi. This gave 25 million acres to white settlement, which was all, virtually all, turned over to cotton and slavery, which is exactly what he wanted. The Cherokee, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Seminoles. I mean, he declared war on the Seminoles, just kind of basically, you know, made this war up. It's just, how can you put that in any kind of context? You know, at the time, the previous president, John Quincy Adams, said what uh, Andrew Jackson was doing was criminal. Yeah, you know, again, it is hard to defend Obviously, the consequences of that were just disastrous, and no more so, I think. I mean, the Choctaw proved how disastrous it was. The removal, they died. Almost a third of the tribe died en route to Oklahoma. Another third, or at least a half of that remaining, died that first winter. Yeah, it was a bureaucratic nightmare in every way, and it would be so difficult to imagine being a survivor of that, you know, knowing that two out of every three of the people you know is gone. So I don't think there's a lot of justification for it. The only thing that I think is possible is to try and understand why Congress would have done this. Why did they go along with the president? How was he able to push this? And to me, the fascinating aspect is that really, as Jackson was promoting this, so many people in America at the time were actually blaming him for being too pro-Indian and being an Indian lover because he was spending so much money on the Indians and giving them what they considered to be prime land, as opposed to giving Wait a minute, his, his nicknames were Indian Killer and Sharp Knife. He was famous for, for killing Indians. I mean, that's what he did back, you know, going after the Seminole, uh, you know, back before he was president. He ordered, after they attacked the men and beat them, he then ordered his soldiers to go in and burn the villages and murder the women and children so there would be no ancestors. Yeah, I mean, there you've got an example of frontier total war at its worst. And Jackson, he did, to say that he was against all Indians would be taking it too far. No, he adopted one, but, you know, that's sort of like saying some of my best friends are Jewish or black or fill in the blanks. I mean, it doesn't really wash. He did, though, agreed. That could be taken in a lot of different ways. But he also allied himself with a number of Indians. When we look at what he did at the Battle of New Orleans, he had a number of Indians fighting on his side. So it was never a clear-cut distinction between those who were Native and those who weren't. Jackson you know, was pretty clear about the way that he thought in terms of who could be in alliance and who couldn't. And often those decisions were fairly moral decisions based on how the tribe had behaved or what they were doing. But doesn't, isn't this something that went back to Bradford in the 1620s of basically aligning with one tribe against another tribe to try and split them apart and then ultimately destroy both of them, even though you've got a temporary alliance with one tribe? Yeah, I mean, that's, why, that's a pretty cynical interpretation of it. But that's but how it played out. It. You know, in large chunks of this country, there's no more Native Americans, and it used to be chock-a-block, right? Full. You know, the other thing that I think, Tom, at least for me, that gives me a little bit of pause is it is true that so many Southerners benefited from the removal. That, again, I don't think we can question. I think that's obvious. But Jackson also went against Southern interests very strongly with the nullification process in 1832 and 1833. So if he really was just adamantly pro-Southern, 
he really shot himself in the foot in a lot of ways. Well, he was ad adamantly pro-slavery, I think. But let's take this to today. One of the things that I find fascinating sure. about it, we're talking with Bradley Berzer. He's got a new book out called In Defense of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson is Donald Trump's favorite president. And what in your mind are the parallels between Jackson and Trump that make Jackson now an iconic figure for Trump followers? Sure. On one side, you've got, of course, all the scandals in terms of marriage, extramarital. Those things were going on in both administrations. And I, Trump, obviously, when it comes to morality and sexuality, he's kind of off the scale. But the other thing that I think shows that there's connectedness, not just their Scottish background, but also the fact that each of them is a very unusual president. That is, they, they really don't fit the norm. They are outsiders who came in and really did challenge a lot of assumptions in Washington, D.C. I can speak better on Jackson than I can on Trump, but I mean, certainly Jackson was very feared in Washington, D.C., not just because he was brutal, and he was, but also because he really was willing to call something. And when he thought it was wrong, he was very open about that. And he did change. I mean, there were a lot of drastic changes in Washington during his two terms. Well, Jackson, his inaugural party was at the White House, and he basically opened the doors and said anybody can come in. And in fact, people came in and they stole pieces of the White House, widely viewed as sort of a raucous time, shall we say. Trump comes into office on the same kind of populist rhetoric. I'm here for you. I'm here for the little guy. But then he doesn't let the people in. And in fact, to get into any of his inaugural balls, you have to be a high-end donor. He fills his cabinet with lobbyists, which is you know, quite different than what Jackson did. He surrounds himself and funds himself with, with billionaires. He himself is a billionaire. Andrew Jackson wasn't, although his wealth increased. It, it, I think you could make a strong case that virtually 100% of Andrew Jackson's wealth was a result of being a slave owner. With any kind of close look, doesn't that comparison break down quite quickly? Yeah, probably. I think that, you know, and it's not something I dwelt upon at all in the book, just making a note that certainly Trump, when he came into office and then on the, the 250th anniversary of Jackson's birth, that he really did celebrate. And it was an interesting speech that Trump gave that day. So, yeah, I mean, that's the real connection. I think just the fact that one is interested in the other. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. The book is In Defense of Andrew Jackson. Bradley Berzer is the author. The book is out now. Bradberzer.com is his website. Brad, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Oh, thank you, Tom. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good talking with you. And fascinating topic. This is the Tom Hartman Program. reading today from Warrior Is by Harley and Robin Zephyr. It's the story of their great-grandfather who, in real life, killed Custer at Little Bighorn. And in fact, there's a map of the war, as it were, the battle. And they say that he is now the spirit keeper of Custer, which is remarkable. And there's a page and a half introduction to the book, and then it becomes a historically accurate novel, basically. This story is the traditional and cultural account of the life of Nikokju Lakota warrior Mato Nianpi, saved by bear, his name in English, also later known as Scarleg. Warrior is based upon a true story. What you are about to read has been told to us through our family, passed down as oral history from generation to generation. Every family has its own story. This is ours. It's up to you to visualize and experience the events described herein in order to determine what you believe or what you choose to accept from what you learn from these pages. You've likely never read a story quite like this before. In Warrior Is, the reader is able to visualize and experience the events and circumstances of Mato Nianpi's life. Many times the story is told in the present tense, such as if you were walking with Saved by Bear and his people as the events unfold. This was our original manner of storytelling. Other times the story is narrated in the past tense to account for a past perspective. Those of us who may not be entirely fluent in particular words or specific language as much as we may be fluent in spirit and honest communication. The life messages many times can be more meaningful than just the written or spoken words. Warrior Is follows the timeline from the time of creation moving through Saved by Bear's birth in 1849 and going up to July 1876, two weeks after the Greasley Brass Battle. Please exercise your free will and follow your conscience when reading this story. The spiritual side is called upon you to open your spirit so that you may read this tale and learn about these events through your own spirit 
and you know continues sort of like in that line but here right to the book prologue he smelled the yellow of the sun his spirit was alive and energetic he felt the energy in his chest and all along the blood running through his veins he looked to his left to see his great friend by his side the strong scent of sage caressed his nostrils and reminded him of home the movement over the high running hilly ridge to the south caught his eye he and swift bear sensed and felt the pathway opening up so much had occurred so quickly so suddenly so dramatically their call to duty his call to duty filled his mind his heart his spirit today it was meant to happen it was presented to the people from the creator the plan was made the warriors summoned the preparation was done it all led to this place this portal in time the sparse clouds to the west resembled mares tails and for a brief moment he remembered his white stone friend in the white mountains he remembered his spiritual commitment to protect his people grandmother earth and the sacred hees hapa and time stood still for a moment a small moment in time through all of the ancient and original history of all the moments of time and as the group of the horse-mounted soldiers rode briskly over the far ridge the creator shined that warm nurturing light upon these warriors such as creator had been doing since the beginning of time since the beginning of grandmother earth and grandfather sky and at the beginning of all things all the moments of time forever had arrived here now it had come to this creator's strong will and great invisible hand had placed them here it was the creator all along it always was it always would be for one to know what led the young lakota warriors to be here at this fateful site near the greasy grass river on this warm sun-drenched day one must go back go back in time way back to the beginning when it was only the creator and the creator of all things decided to create a new world her name would be unsimaka grandmother earth and she would be created to hold and sustain life all kinds of beings all kinds of people would be given and placed upon and within her to show her love of life and this is how it all began chapter 1 origin the human beings evolved from the spirit before arriving in wind cave we were star people Many of us came from a place called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, an ancient star grouping and constellation that contains worlds comprised of the gift of life-giving water. Water is life, mini wikoni. The Pleiadian influence is an absolute, but those of us who claim to be relatives of the Pleiadians share a common bond with other indigenous people regardless of where we are geographically on the earth. We will always remain Pleiadian star people. spiritually we have become human beings of different races and ethnicities but the origin of our spirit is the water and for us and as to who we are as the tribal people in a family way our name is minkoju its evidence it means life's subsistence through the gathering and planting by the waters and or river the minkoju spend their lives living by the waters this is something that many of our own people do not know or understand but this is our history not only of our physical existence but also the history of our spiritual existence on Unsimaka the book is warrior is by robin and harley zephyr i've been using the muse eeg neurofeedback headband i'm not sure that's exactly what they call it but the website is choosemuse.com it's a little headband you put on um just sets over your ears sort of like a pair of glasses only it goes across the forehead and it actually reads your brain waves your eeg and feeds it back to you through a free app on your on your smartphone into your earphones into your into your ears as the sounds of weather and as your brain gets more agitated the weather gets louder and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about 4 or 5 months now and I have noticed in my daily writing because I've I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to I used to sit down to write and say okay I'm going to write for an hour and half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, 
I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. David Horowitz says of this new book, Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past, James Robbins has written a richly informed book about the campaign to demonize America by erasing and then rewriting its history. This is a totalitarian agenda, and Americans who love their country should arm themselves with Robbins' book. On the line with us is James S. Robbins, the author of Erasing America, Losing Our Future by Destroying Our Past. James, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. I should add that your Twitter handle is at James underscore Robbins, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. So, James, why do you want to memorialize traitors who fought to preserve slavery and took arms against America and killed 600,000 people? I mean, white supremacist Tim McVeigh also took up arms against America. Do you want a monument to him? Oh, well, certainly not. I think a proper monument to him was the video of him being executed. I think that was just perfect for him. Then why Robert uh, E. Lee? Why Robert E. Lee? Well, Robert E. Lee killed a lot, a lot more Americans than Tim McVeigh. Well, he thought that he was defending his country. No, he didn't. And, uh, he separated well, from his country. What, Robert E. Lee didn't think he was defending his country. No, he did not. He separated from his country. When you well, secede from the United uh, States, you are not defending the United was, States. Uh, you are committing was, treason. He's a traitor. Oh, well, he was uh, he was defending Virginia. That was his point. Of Virginia view. is not the United States. Well, but I'm telling you what his point is. So you was. think and that somebody who against the premise that he was defending his country, but that's what he thought. He did not think he was defending his country. You're right. He thought he was defending Virginia, or at least that part of Virginia that wanted to maintain slavery. But I don't understand what it is about treason that is so seductive to you guys. Oh, well, is it really what I'm talking about? I'm not really talking about the Civil War, because this starts with the Civil War. It starts with Confederate monuments, and then pretty soon people want to take down George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Actually, those Confederate monuments were not put up during the Civil War. Most of those Confederate monuments were put up after Birth of a Nation came out in 1915 in this massive revival of the Klan across the South. Well, a lot of those monuments were put up even before that. I mean, we can quibble. Yeah, there were two periods. There was one in the 1880s. And if you take a look at all the monuments across the United States to the Civil War generals, what you find is that about 80% of them would have put up in two 10-year periods, one in the 1880s and the other in the late teens and the early 1920s. And Mm -hmm. in both cases, they followed a revival of the Ku Klux Klan, and they followed attempts to intimidate black people from voting. Well, that's one theory. No, it's supported by the evidence. That's an interesting theory. Monuments were put up in North and South. They were put up by a variety of reasons, by a variety of people. The ones in the South were put up by Democrats. Democrats are now taking... Democrats were the party of slavery until 1965. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Democrats... But the Democratic Party today has nothing to do with that. Taking them down. The Democratic Party today has nothing to do with that, James. You know, maybe you weren't alive in the 60s or haven't read that history, but the Democratic Party repudiated slavery and racism in the 1960s. The Republicans then stepped in to embrace it with something Richard Nixon called the Southern Strategy. It's great that the the Democrats caught up to the Republican Party, the traditional anti-slavery party. It's great that it took them 100 years to catch up. I think you were talking over me when I said, and then the Republican Party with Richard Nixon's Southern Strategy in 1968, three years after the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed, stepped in to pick up that Southern racist vote. You say in your book that we are dissing Christopher Columbus's memory. I have a bit of a problem with that. I mean, Christopher Columbus started the first international sex trade operation. He wrote to the king of Spain. He said, 100 Castellanos, a Spanish coin, are as easily obtained for a woman as a farm. And it's very general that there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from 9 to 10 years old are now in most demand. He gave a young Taino woman to his number two guy, Mr. Cueno, Miguel Cueno, who said, quote, Columbus gave me my own sex slave, a beautiful young girl who resisted with all her strength, leaving me no choice but to thrash her mercilessly and rape her. This is the guy that you think we should be celebrating? The purpose of honoring Columbus, in addition to honoring the heritage of Italian-Americans, which is one of the reasons why... I think a lot of Italian-Americans are embarrassed by this. 
Well, a lot of them are, but maybe, but a lot of them also think that Columbus was somebody worth honoring and that Italy is something worth honoring. What's worth honoring? A guy who's a fortune hunter who kills people and rapes people. Well, if you want to hunt fortunes, well, you know, what business is it of yours? Well, that's my point. What business of it is our nations in celebrating a guy who bumbled into this continent and then proceeded to murder people? I mean, he, he killed a couple of million Indians, the Tainos, in what's now uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic. And, I mean, it literally wiped them out. They, it reached the point. This is, again, uh, Cueno, the, the guy who was his number two guy on the boat. He said that as a result of the suffering and hard labor they have endured, the Indians choose and have chosen suicide. Occasionally, a hundred have committed mass suicide. The women, exhausted by labor, have shunned conception and childbirth. Many, when pregnant, have taken something to abort and have aborted. Others have delivered after delivery, have killed their children with their own hands so as not to leave them in such oppressive slavery. This is what, what we we're supposed to be celebrating, we James? Celebrate with Columbus, what we celebrate are the consequences of his voyage, the discovery of the New World, and everything. The Vikings discovered that. the New World 500 years earlier. Well, they didn't do much with it. But what Columbus discovered it and did much with it. Uh, he's the guy who opened up the New World to the later waves of European exploration and, and exploitation that from that the United States and then South America. So I'm assuming then you also the celebrate the largest genocide in the history of the world. The most consequential human migration. In so I'm assuming then that you're celebrating the largest genocide in the history of the world. And freedom. So I, I you know, I, I'm assuming, James, that you're celebrating the largest genocide in the history of the world. We killed somewhere between 40 and 100 million Native Americans on this continent over a 300, 400 year period. That's what you're celebrating? Well, that was a, an unintended consequence of a lot of it. I mean, that had unintended to do with transmission of disease. No, most of that was from disease, but that was a lot of it was. And don't go into this whole, you know, smallpox blankets nonsense. Well, it's not nonsense. It actually happened in Ohio, but that's not my point. I mean, you know, Manifest Destiny, Jefferson opened up the West and directed the Army to go out and kill Indians. You denying that? He directed the Army to go kill Indians. That was his order, go kill Indians. That was yeah. his order. Clear the lands. I mean, you know, what's the difference? Well, okay, the, the, the book is, is Erasing America by James S. Robbins. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You can tweet him at James underscore Robbins. Thanks, James. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the last hours of ancient sunlight. This is page 176. With few exceptions, most Native American cultures did not have our notions as part of their collective mythos. Instead of the story that we're separate from creation and born to nominate it, these older cultures held a different view of the place of humans in the order of creation. They believe we are part of the world. We are made of the same flesh as other animals. We eat the same plants. We share the same air, water, soil, and food with every other life form on the planet. We are born into life by the same means as other mammals, and when we die like them, we become part of the soil that will nourish future generations. They also believe it is our destiny to cooperate with the rest of creation. Every life form has its special purpose in the grand ecosystem, and all are to be respected, they believed. Each animal and plant has its own unique intelligence and spirit. We are permitted to compete with other plants and animals, but we may not wantonly destroy them. All life is absolutely as sacred as human life. Although hunting and killing for food are part of nature's order, when we do so, it must be done with respect and thankfulness. Older cultures are most often cooperators, not dominators. There are human cultures who do not engage in the destruction of the world. They demonstrate that destruction and domination are not an inevitable part of human nature. Prior to the emergence of younger cultures about 7,000 years ago, the anthropological record shows that not one culture believed itself to be separate from and superior to nature. We find the remnants of these older cultures and tribal people around the world, such as the San, the Kogi, the Ik of uh, Uganda, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Cree, the Ojibwa, living in harmony with the world around them, the people around them, and seeing all life as sacred. The San Bushmen don't even qualify as Stone Age, since they've never used stone implements, only tools made from wood. And yet they were successfully pursuing their way of life 40,000 years before Aristotle, and they still are. They leave behind few traces as they are such masters of resource management. That's sustainability. And contrary to the stories of our culture, it was and is often a happy and comfortable life. When we lived like that thousands of years ago, we enjoyed cradle-to-grave security. The tribe took care of itself. If anybody had food, everybody had food. If anybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent, 
everybody had a diseased child or an infirm parent. The measure of wealth in such societies was security. Medians of exchange like money were unnecessary. The idea of hoarding food or other things was unthinkable because everybody was responsible for everybody. Our ancient ancestors lived in the way of all other cooperator societies in nature, but be they the society of wolves or chimpanzees or prairie dogs, they looked out for one another. Our ancestors, people like you and me of all races and all continents, lived like this all over the world for 40 to 200,000 years, depending on whose archaeology you accept. And then there were eruptions among traditional cultures. In some parts of the world, people began to move away from their hunting and gathering lifestyle by experimenting with agriculture. This created more efficient food production, thus increasing their numbers and giving some people the ability to hoard food, the beginning of what we call wealth. Then a subgroup of the agriculturalists began experimenting with a new cultural idea of coercive or forced evangelism, of bringing others into their culture in a way that had never been done before. Their gods told them that if they couldn't evangelize others, then they should utterly destroy them. They were a very few, probably not more than a dozen tribes, which arose out of the tens of thousands of tribes that populated the planet. And this small number of tribes proceeded to wipe out and displace and destroy the thousands of other tribes who were living in a sustainable, peaceful, and connected to nature way. They left the garden and began to create dominating city-states and then empires. They were the first people infected with Wetziko, the origin of our younger culture. And because of this, they had become more efficient at increasing their own numbers. They had more sunlight under their own personal control. Of course, there was a price to pay for this. While the San, Kogi, Ik, and other native peoples may spend less than two to four hours a day gathering food and attending to the needs of life, and due to this day, by the way, in younger culture societies, this balance was radically shifted as average people must work longer and harder just to survive. Those who were the dominating individuals in the culture, however, could live luxuriously and work less and less. So for every person who only worked an hour or two a day, another person would have to work four or eight or ten hours a day or more. Without massive exploitation of resources or theft from others, for every person with ten times as much wealth, ten people must have only one-tenth as much. Social and economic classes were born, and the first governments came into being to define, order, and control the socioeconomic structure and help the wealthy maintain and increase their riches. Whether they knew it or not, these governments, mostly kingdoms in the early days, transmitted younger culture values to all citizens, rich and poor. The power brokers of this time programmed the consciousness of their subjects, just as our governments, educational institutions, and mass media do today. Nobody knows what brought about the first eruption of Wetziko cultural insanity, but logic suggests it was most likely happened in places where food resources were only cyclically abundant. For example, the Tinglet and Weida Native American tribes of the Pacific Northwest in the area around Vancouver Island were apparently extensive traders and owners of slaves. And this was because they could store food. This, this is where it all began, beginning wealth. Anyhow, the book is The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. This is just a small dip into it. On the line with us is Christopher Massicott, the chair of the Victory Fund Campaign Board and a partner at DS Political. VictoryFund.org is the website, the Twitter handle, DS Political. Christopher, it's not a blue wave. How about a rainbow wave? Tell us about this. Yeah, so we've identified, the Victory Fund has identified almost 400 LGBTQ candidates that are running for office this year. That is obviously a record number. We've smashed our previous record. You know, most of them are Democrats running not just because, you know, they're LGBTQ, but they're running as a result of Donald Trump being elected and wanting to help fight his policies. We've had about 100 and something anti-LGBT bills introduced into various state legislatures. Twelve of them in the last year have become law. And it's really important to have a seat at that table. So we have so many more LGBTQ candidates running not only for state legislative offices, but giant, you know, big offices, statewide offices like Governor of Vermont, Colorado, Oregon, Texas. And we're really going to see a huge number increase in the number of LGBT elected officials where we're at somewhere around 550 now. Are these virtually all Democrats? They're virtually all Democrats. Victory Fund is a nonpartisan organization. We do support Republicans where we can, but as you know, it's really hard being a Republican, an LGBTQ Republican yeah. uh, in today's uh, political climate. The decision, I, I always mangle the name, Obergefeld? 
Obergefell, yeah. Obergefell, thank you. It was the decision where the Supreme Court essentially legalized gay marriage uh, nationwide, and uh, Justice Kennedy was the swing vote on that. Kennedy is being replaced, in all probability, with Kavanaugh. If not by Kavanaugh, then with another right-wing crank from the Federalist Society. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think pretty much no matter who Trump puts in there, it will be somebody who's hostile to those rights that Kennedy was always respectful of. I mean, you know, Kennedy was a a reliable right-wing vote when it came to, you know, destroying unions or supporting, uh, you know, big corporations or polluters. But but he did did support gay rights or LGBTQ rights. What kind of damage could Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court do to this? Do you expect that this is a case that might get relitigated? I do, and I think it's really important that we elect LGBTQ candidates to the table. We have some great candidates that are running for the Senate. Kirsten Sinema in Arizona is poised to uh, take Jeff Flake's seat. Tammy Baldwin is running for re-election. She's running a very strong re-election campaign. And I'm worried about these decisions because we just saw with the cake bakers, you know, that, that decision was uh, came down with the, the current court that we had. Think about all of the other cases that are winding their way through the courts today that they're going to end up in a court that includes Brett Kavanaugh. And those decisions that have been already done, like Justice Kennedy, not only was he the swing vote, but he also wrote the opinion. We lost a, you know, somebody who was very good on those particular issues. So I'm very worried about a Kavanaugh justice or you know anybody else that Trump will nominate. Yeah. How can people support what you're doing? We're talking with Christopher Massacott. He is the chair of the Victory Fund Campaign Board, a partner at DS Political. VictoryFund.org is the website. I'm assuming go to Victory Fund and pitch in. VictoryFund.org, we have a list of all of our candidates. We're supporting them at various levels. We have a a group of spotlight candidates that are really the the ones that we're really focusing on that are going to be a historic first or they're going to be that they're really important because they're running for the state legislature in what so-called lower equality states or that they're going to make a historic first. Victory Fund is, you know, we hear about like, oh, I was the first, you know, LGBTQ person elected to Congress from Florida or the first African-American elected to a state legislature who's LGBTQ. And Victory Fund is in the business of making historic first history. And we really need people to support candidates through money. And if you live in that district, talk to your friends about these candidates and, you know, talk to them about the upcoming election. Make sure every last person that you know votes. I'm from Massachusetts, and I happened to be in Massachusetts during the primary there, and I was talking to every single one of my friends that I knew that could vote for an LGBTQ candidate, because that's how people decide how they're going to vote. Political ads do make a big impact, but it's also word of mouth. So uh, donating money to the candidates that you care about, to areas that you care about where people are from, and know that we have candidates running all over the country. It's not just in New York or Massachusetts or California. We have an amazing candidate in the Kansas 2nd Congressional District, Cerise Davids, who's going to be the first Native American LGBTQ person elected to Congress. And, you know, she's really poised to win that race against Kevin Yoder. I've noticed that some candidates seem to be putting front and center the fact that they're LGBTQ. And others, like the woman who's running for, the trans woman who's running for governor of Vermont, pretty much will acknowledge it, but say, you know, really, let's talk about the potholes. Let's talk about, you know, health care in Vermont. Let's talk about the security of the citizens. Is that decision to front and center that part of a person's life or put it into the background, is that a largely regional decision or has the acceptance of LGBTQ people broadly reached a threshold in the United States where in most places anyway, it's not that big a deal? I think you're right in that we have reached a level of acceptance that it's not that big of a deal, but it is still a huge part of who you are. People, not only do they vote for the person and how that person is going to represent them, but they also vote for them like, what are you going to do for me? You were talking about Christine Hulquist, who's running for governor of Vermont. She was the CEO of the, the statewide power utility company there. She brought that company back from the brink of disaster, doing it through renewable energy and environmental friendly practices. And she's running on a platform of bringing broadband internet to parts of rural Vermont that just doesn't have that. And when you have a state where there's a lot of, you know, lower income people having access to broadband internet, having the ability 
to have information being able to flow in and out of a rural state like that is so important. And she's just really running on building up the infrastructure. And she has a proven record that she can do that. Yeah, especially when you can, you know, if it can be done as a public utility like Chattanooga did. Christopher, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Christopher Massacott, the chair of the Victory Fund Campaign Board. Victoryfund.org is the website. Check it out and see how you can help out. There's a, a long way to go and a lot of work to do here. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com. Right now, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. XChairTom.com. Now back to the podcast. A very interesting little news tip. At 2 a.m. this morning, hundreds of Twitter accounts suddenly woke up and started tweeting the exact identical same pro-Ted Cruz statement about how Beto doesn't believe in standing for the flag or some sort of nonsense like that. It's bizarre. Anyhow, today we're going to pick it up and run with it. Congressman Pocant here on the Tom Hartman program. Congressman Pocant, of course, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, pocant.house.gov. You can tweet him at repmarkpocant. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. It is so great to have you with us. Are you drinking tea this week, too? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. It's so funny. Last week, people can, you know, we're, we're simulcast on television, and, and some people thought, uh, is that whiskey he's drinking? No, it's just, you know, tea. Okay. Uh, Actually, by Wisconsin standards, it probably would be brandy. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> but it wasn't. No. Right. Brett Kavanaugh. It looks like Susan Collins maybe is wavering, but that's going re- to require all of the Democrats to hold firm in the Senate. And I don't know what the status of that is. Do you? Uh, no. I mean, I think there's still about close to a half a dozen people who haven't stated their opinion on the Democratic side. Um, Susan Collins has not been especially strong on some of her earlier statements that she was going to make sure that Roe v. Wade would be upheld. Lisa Murkowski, I don't know if we are officially uh, satisfied we have an answer on that. I know there's a heavy push right now on those two in the Republicans in the Senate. Um, But I think, you know, part of what's interesting coming out of the last couple weeks, and, you know, a lot of people called in on this last week, is that, you know, it's starting to look like there may be a few instances where Mr. Kavanaugh was not exactly uh, forthright in his testimony. And uh, including some connections to my home state of Wisconsin. Uh, Lisa Graves, who used to be, I think, the head of the council for uh, Senator Leahy, some of her emails somehow wound up uh, in the hands of, looks like, Mr. Kavanaugh, and he claimed they never were, and some things that were hacked or illegally gotten got to him. And, and that's just one of several examples. So there's some push on the outside. Is this something that's impeachable? Could you impeach him as a judge now? I'm not exactly sure because this is all still pretty fresh where that's going to wind up. I do think Cory Booker has been pretty um, interesting and brave in continuing to release documents at the peril, potentially, of the Republicans who are in charge of the Senate, but trying to make sure we get as much information to know about this nominee. But again, if Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski don't stand up for what they say they believe in, it, it could all be moot. 
But there's a lot moving on this nomination, and you know, people should stay very, very closely involved. Yeah. Amen. Donald Trump says 3,000 people didn't die in Puerto Rico, that the Democrats are just making up numbers. What? Yeah. Say what? You know, I, I got I to say, just when I think the guy can't get any lower, he, he gets lower. And it, it, it really, this guy is the most truthfully challenged, not just president, but elected official. This would be like George point. Bush saying 3,000 people didn't die on 9-11. Well, yeah, and it's, what's so awful is you know, these are American citizens. How would you like to be someone who had a family member or neighbor or friend die and you're being disrespected by the president because he's living in a fantasy world that he thinks he did a good job in Puerto Rico following the hurricane? Um, it, it's just incredibly disrespectful. It's incredibly dishonest. It tells you far more about the character of Donald Trump, and I'm guessing that's why there's a 14 14- point uh, generic ballot advantage for Democrats over Republicans right now in Congress, because this guy uh, is really more the liar-in-chief than the commander-in-chief, and people who don't even follow politics are kind of tired of it. But I thought that was especially disrespectful and about as low as you can get to disrespect to so many people uh, who died because of the hurricane. Yeah. Amen. Let's pick up some phone calls here. Russ in Hickory Oaks, Illinois, you're on the air with Congressman Mark Pocan. Hi, thank you for taking my call, Mr. Pocan. Now that they're trying to plug the first tax cut with $1.7 trillion of our money, what, what is this thing I'm hearing, a, a new one, a half a trillion, a trillion dollars in uh, new tax cuts? Because I'll tell you what, between this guy going on the Supreme Court and these tax cuts, these Republicans, they don't know when to stop. And we don't blame Congress enough for this. Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan have been getting a free ride. We're blaming Donald Trump for everything. Well, how much is this going to new tax cuts going to cost us? Yeah, Russ, first of all, you bring up an excellent point, which is let's remember where the tax cuts came from. They came from uh, the gut, the inner uh, being of Paul Ryan uh, and Mitch McConnell. But Paul Ryan, this is all he's ever wanted to do in Congress is lower taxes for really, really rich people and corporations, and he was able to get that done. It's the one thing they did this session, and all the other ineptitude. It's not just Donald Trump. I mean, this is the Republicans in the House and the Senate uh, have passed a tax bill last November that not only 83% of the money goes to the top 1% uh, in a decade, but uh, takes away the individual mandate and other things that are going to make everyone's health insurance premiums go up in October probably between 8 and 30%. So everyone's going to see a big spike because of that tax bill. So that was an awful, awful thing they did for all the special interests in this town. Paul Ryan will be rewarded uh, mightily when he leaves Congress, I can guarantee, uh, for this. But it's not just Donald Trump. You're right, Russ. Um, so what they're doing is they're trying to do a tax bill 2.0. That's why they had us come out literally for 24 hours. Uh, now we're going to finish up today uh, because of the storms. But they still had us come out because they had to get this moving because they're trying to um, now make permanent all the tax cuts, uh, which, again, will add just even more to the deficit. So <clears throat> these people have nothing uh, in mind for working people in this country. This is more of their uh, effort to take care of the donor class, the Mar-a-Lago class, and uh, we should make sure we hold them all accountable for it. Tom in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you for taking my call, Tom. And let me just ask you a question real quick. Everybody's complaining that Donald Trump is lying about that $3,000 number down in Puerto Rico. When the trade centers were hit, we got a number. We got a number within a month. We got a number. When a hurricane happens or a tornado happens, we got a number. These people can't even manage 20,000 cases of water. They come up with a number a year later. How do you know what the toll And they don't give an explanation of, like what the number is from a year later next year it'll be six thousand people is it going to be six thousand people when they give a report out next year and the donald trump he missed it again that 64 number was given by puerto rico not donald trump he's just reporting what they gave congress yeah so, so tom uh, you know in your fantasy uh the president would be giving uh, the truthful number at 64 but according to every university that's gone down there that said the number was in the thousands they were trying to collect the most accurate number. Don't forget, the electricity was down, water was down, far more damage than we see on the mainland here on the 48 uh, when a hurricane hits. So you can believe the fantasy the president's putting out there. He wants you to believe in alternative facts and fake news and all the rest. And you can be a diehard till the end. You can be part of that 35%. Or you can live in the world based in reality, which is uh, the fact that we've been told by multiple sources the number's in the thousands. And the official number now is almost 3,000. 
So, you know, you can protect a guy who did a crappy job in dealing with a hurricane uh, who now wants to lie about it, um, or you can live in the world the rest of us do where it's not just hearing it from Democrats or whatever. You're hearing it from every entity that's gone down there has said the number is much uh, larger than was originally assessed because they had no way to get that number at that time. Paul in Taos, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, Tom. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for being on here. I called with what appears to be a softball question, which I'll ask pointedly right now, and then if you may, if I may, just back it up with a little observation. Uh, the question being, what do you think the prospects of expanding the Progressive Caucus in the Congress is in this upcoming midterms? And what's behind that question is, you know, I got to say, I admire in some fashion Republicans because they go for what they want and they go for the jugular. And I think the, the real problem is corporate Democrats because they, they, this third way uh, idea is, is an abject failure. And um, I, I mean, pointing the, the, to me, the, the pinnacle of that failure was Hillary Clinton picking Tim Kaine as her vice president. That was like Rahm Emanuel, like all the corporate Democrats telling progressives, go, go screw yourself. And I think that's our problem. Your thoughts? Yeah, Paul, so thank you for your question. And um, so, so one, I do think we're going to expand the Progressive Caucus. We have 78 members currently. There are 39 challengers we are backing across the country that are on the ballot in November. And I think we're going to have a couple, maybe more, to endorse. Um, but that's about around 40 people that we're looking forward to trying to bring into Congress. Um, and I think it's something like 30% of the red-to-blue candidates that have been, you know, are the kind of DCCC candidates they think they have the best chance of winning are also the candidates that we're endorsing in the Progressive Caucus. So we've got a lot of new people that are going to come in. They're going to make our caucus stronger. But I think to your point, Paul, one of the things that we've been trying to do since i become co-chair, working with Pramila Jayapal, who's our first vice chair, who's a tremendous uh, member of Congress from the Seattle area, uh, we're taking our, our, our nonprofit entity for the Progressive Caucus and giving it muscle. And we're going to be putting together uh, essentially a recreation of what the old Democratic study group was pre-Newt Gingrich to be able to analyze bills. We're going to work with our outside partners in the progressive community not only to take their ideas and bring them to actualization as legislation, but then when we've got progressive ideas moving forward, using their grassroots networks to put pressure on Democratic leadership to understand the progressive issues are the issues that people agree with. And uh, we're also going to do you know, some serious polling at the beginning of the year, again, proving our issues. We're not your, your mother or father's progressive caucus. Uh, it has changed quite a bit, and I think it's going to continue to with a lot of the new folks coming in. But we are uh, right now working out like crazy. We're about to flex the muscle, and we're ready to do that in January. And I think you'll be very pleased with the direction we're going. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much, sir. Sure. Thank you. Great so. talking with you. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, former Republican congressman from Ohio. Congressman, welcome back. Well, thank you, Tom. So uh, it's always so nice to talk with you, Bob. I always learn so much. I, what's at the top of your hit parade in terms of the news today? Oh, you're so kind, but uh, I, I learn a lot from you. I, I love your show. I listen to it. Um, Thank you. Well, I'm not going to say Donald Trump's name first. How about that? Okay. I'm going to say Betsy DeVos. Oh, yeah. She works for Donald Trump, all right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's, of course, the uh, Secretary of Education, and she's lost a lawsuit, and um, that was uh, accusing the Department of delaying inappropriately, uh, accusing them of delaying the implementation of a borrower defense rule that protected students. Now, of course, this was a rule that was brought during the uh, implementation uh, in the Obama-era regulations. It was meant to protect students who took out loans to attend college from predatory practices. And by the way, the suit was brought by 19 states and the District of Columbia. And, of course, uh, it went through the uh, federal system, and a Washington federal court judge on Wednesday ruled that the department's postponement of this borrower defense rule was procedurally improper. Let me, let me so, just get this straight, Bob. Betsy DeVos has been arguing in court against 19 states in the District of Columbia yes. that regulating the student loan business with regard to uh, predatory practices, that stopping 
predatory uh, banking corporations from ripping off students. Stopping that is a bad thing, that we should simply let predatory loan pra practices go on. That, is that the position she, t she was taking? Absolutely. That's absolutely. The, and not only did she take it, she helped to stop the Obama-era regulation rule. Well, she made sure it wasn't implemented. It was a rule during his time as president. So has the court forced her to put the rule into place? Oh, absolutely, because what they're doing, uh, you know, th this was in, these were revelations that some, and they have cases here, right. some for-profit colleges entice students with promises for education and diplomas, and they would not allow them to get jobs in their chosen fields. It was a sham. So those certifications weren't recognized. <laughs> yeah, so... And it, yeah, and so the department deprived plaintiffs uh, of several concrete benefits. So other of so as DeVos, so DeVos loses. The court says you must protect students who are borrowers. Right. What else is up, Bob? Unreal. Well, uh, you know they're talking about the uh, blue wave, and I think this is pretty. Uh, fascinating when you look at all of the of the data out there and you look at the numbers 1706 democratic congressional candidates have spent or raised money during this current cycle so that breaks the previous record set in 2010 when 1600 or 1688 republican candidates registered with the FEC and we of course know about the the Tea Party wave and what what happened with that. Sure. So on the Democratic side, this is a great blue wave, but it does get boiled down to with this headline that we read today on all this. Though what President Obama has been stating over and over and over, which is you know you can be upset and you can wring your hands or gnash your teeth, whatever you want to do, or complain about Donald Trump, but it's a great statistic that is out here for a potential blue wave. But unless the voter turnout occurs in November, then there's a problem. If yeah. the voter turnout is in November, then these statistics, I think, probably bode pretty well. Right, with only one out of four eligible voters under the age of 25 showing up to vote right now, we've got a major crisis in this country, and young people in particular need to get activated. They need to make sure that they're registered to vote, they need to get out there to vote, and uh, even as, you know, like Michigan has made it almost impossible for students to vote. They, you have to vote at your parents' uh, you know, uh, home. And so you know, if you're going to school in, in Lansing and you live in, in, uh, you know, in the Upper Peninsula, you've got to drive hundreds of miles, hours and hours just to vote. Um, but still, do it. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and get Democrats in there who will change those laws. Forgive the rant, Bob. Back to you. What's going on? Well, what else is in the news? Right. The statistics look good if yeah. the voter turnout occurs. And of course, the committee vote is scheduled now. It was on an 11 to 10 party line vote for Kavanaugh, and that will be uh, 1.45 p.m. on September the 20th. There's still a lot of back and forth, uh, but that's when it's scheduled. So they're going to vote on it next week? Oh, yeah. They're going to cut it off September the 20th. Wow. Committee vote. Wow. Okay. Bob Ney, uh, the author of Sideswiped uh, with TalkMediaNews.com. Thank you, Bob. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So I want to tell you another story that uh, concerns me tremendously. Uh, this is by Pam and Russ Martins. They run a website called WallStreetParade.com. And the headline is, The Chorus Grows for the Fed to Buy Stocks in the Next Wall Street Crisis. And, you know, it's real interesting. This, this, the Troubled Asset Relief Program is a highly sanitized way of saying to the American people, we're going to take your tax dollars, or the Fed is going to create money out of thin air, or both, and we're going to use that, those dollars to buy troubled assets that the banks are holding. So the banks are holding a trillion dollars worth of worthless mortgages, and we're going to buy them from the banks so the banks don't go out of business. Now, any other business, you'd say, you know, if, if, uh, if Apple had made some horrible design mistake and come out with an iPhone that didn't actually work, and they had a million of them sitting in a warehouse in China, do you think that our tax dollars should buy those phones from Apple and destroy them so that Apple could get on with their business? 
or if a pharmaceutical company that, that uh, you know, uh, manufactures drugs in the United States and in India had, uh, you know, a, a big batch of, of drugs that they made here in the U.S. that uh, didn't work or that went bad in the manufacturing process, should you and I buy it from them at full retail in order to, to keep that in pharmaceutical company from being hurt? Well, no, the, you know, the, just the idea is crazy. But this is exactly what we did with the banks. We went to the banks and we said, oh, you're sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of phony baloney mortgages that you yourself sold in the first place. I mean, you got people to sign up for these mortgages knowing that they could never pay for them because you got the, the, the fee on the front end for each one of them. And now you're sitting on these things on your balance sheet. These are troubled assets. We will borrow a trillion dollars from our taxpayers, and we will buy these assets, these bad mortgages, from you. So that's what we did in 2007 with TARP, TARP 1 and TARP 2. This, is what, this was George W. Bush's response to the, to, the, to the great Bush crash of 2008. This was his response, was TARP. Well, now there's a group of people, JP, JP, led by J.P. Morgan Chase, the bank, that's saying, you know, banks aren't holding so many bad mortgages anymore. But banks are now holding huge piles of stock in publicly traded companies. And if the stock market falls, the banks are going to be in big trouble. Now, obviously, the easy answer is, <laughs> banks, sell your stock now. But the banks won't, don't want to do that. They think, hey, it might go up another three or four points. We're greedy after all. That's why we're banks. And so what are they saying? Let me read you this quote from uh, J.P. Morgan. This is from a senior analyst at the bank, uh, Marco Klonovic. It remains to be seen how government and central banks will respond in the scenario of a great liquidity crisis. If the standard interest rate cutting and bond purchases do not suffice, central banks may more explicitly target asset prices, e.g. equities. Equities is the word bankers use to say stocks. This may be controversial in light of, you think, in light of the potential impact of central bank actions in driving inequality between asset owners and labor. In other words, we're going to bail out the rich guys who have bad investments, but we're not going to bail out the workers. This is nuts. Kano in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kano, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Remember, I'm Kino from Lakeland, or the Moose Herders. Oh, yeah. And we want to talk about our agenda. Now, we want the public to understand what we're trying to do. We want John Huntsman to be put in as vice president so he can negotiate a rules of engagement for cyber war with Russia. He's got contacts in Russia, and we need to tell Russia to quit hacking into our system here. So we want John Huntsman to be the vice president to negotiate a rules of engagement. Now, if I could send a message, all the senators, all the Republican senators in the Senate who will join in with the moose herders, we're going to call them the lions, and there'll be a pride of lions. And we're going to start with Susan Collins. And we plead with her, we beg with her to vote against Kavanaugh. Uh, we don't want corporate uh, fascism in America, you know. I, I, and Kano, so let me interrupt you just in for a America. minute. Kano, let me interrupt you just for a minute. People who are listening may not realize who you are. Uh, you are, I think, probably the only Republican in America. Well, you know, one of actually, no, there, there's more and more of them coming out uh, yeah. who who still has loyalty to the Republican Party and yet thinks Donald Trump is crazy and a danger to the republic. Yes, absolutely. Remember, Tom, our motto is convince Pence to dump Trump. OK, well, I don't think Pence will take much convincing on that. He has believed since he was 13 years old that God wants him to be president of the United States. Well, all right, now here's the thing. Also, Maxine Waters was on Newsmax on Jesse Lee Peterson's program, and he showed her saying, "We after we get Trump, we're going to get uh, Pence." And I asked Maxine to please back off. Don't be premature. We we may get Pence later if he doesn't act right. But right now, we're going to need to use him to change teams and have him and and Huntsman to be the team. And right now, it's just Trump and Pence as a team. We got to get the old nag. But to mix our metaphors, the U.S. Republican senators who would join in with us to get the old elephant and pull him down. And, and we want to start with uh, Susan Collins. Uh, she'll be a lioness. Uh, she, she can be part of the pride. We're going to help America. If she We're doesn't, if she doesn't cave on Kavanaugh. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Kino, thank you for the call. It's always interesting hearing from you. Fascinating, actually.
And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.